1: Welcome to Tales to Terrify, part of the District of Wonders network. Featuring starship, sofa, and far-fetched fables, everyone has a story in the District of Wonders. Come and find yours. Good evening, children of the night. As you hear this, the District of Wonders Kickstarter, everyone, worlds without walls, has one week to go. As I record this, the second stretch goal is getting pretty close to being met, and I hope that you all can make that happen. I've included a link to the Kickstarter in the show notes so that you can read the full details. For those of you that do not have the Tales to Terrify Volume 1 ebook, it is included in any pledge amount over 10 pounds, which is about 12 U.S. dollars. I also managed to find some time in my schedule to make it to the movie theater this week and saw Jordan Peele's Get Out. I went into that movie only knowing that the premise of the movie is that there is an interracial American couple who go to meet the white parents and then, well, bad things start happening. I'd gone in a bit skeptical knowing that Jordan Peele, of the hilarious Key and Peele duo, had directed a horror film, but I have to say that it was a very solid movie. The plot was kept without needless extras, all of the characters seemed to have a meaningful place, the execution of the movie seemed to be done with classical techniques, and the film still managed to add an emotional element outside of dread and terror you check it out, I'd really encourage you to keep an eye on the buck and doe theme which is returned to throughout the film. I have a thing for cyclical themes. Also, I think I'll keep an eye on Betty Gabriel for upcoming films. The phone chargers seem terrific. Check out that movie after you listen to our stories. We have two of them for you tonight. Our first story of the night comes to us from Mr. Harlan Guthrie, known also by the online pseudonym The Leary Valley. He's the author of creepypasta poem The Rotted Man and a number of short stories, including The Prank, Cheyenne to Portland, and Now and Forever. His work has been featured on several No Sleep podcasts since 2013. Guthrie started writing and starring in his own comedic short films at a young age and has more recently been focused on writing poems, and short horror stories. He is also the co-creator and host of the online gaming group The Invictus Stream. Lend me your ears for Harlan Guthrie's The Sun Hath Dried Us Black.
3: Arthur Carver stepped out of his house and greeted the dull gray light with feigned purpose. The smell of wet smoke and fire still lingered in the air as he stood on his damp wooden porch surveying the wreckage before him. The storm had strewn barrels, pieces of wood, and various bits of hay all about the main square of their little hamlet. It'd be a fair bit of work to clean it up, and Arthur knew that no one was going to simply volunteer. That left it up to him as acting mayor to delegate the task. Once again, he would be the cause of today's strife, and for a moment he considered simply doing it himself. But he shook the thought from his mind when he remembered that after the town hall meeting he was to help Edward negotiate the cost of a few more horses from another village. Although, why waste an opportunity? He said quietly to himself as he walked absentmindedly towards the center of the town square, stooping to pick up small pieces of wood and bits of hay as he walked. He made sure to do it in loud gestures so the other townfolk, who were currently emerging from their houses saw the effort he was putting into cleaning the square himself. This way, he thought to himself, they won't see me as just delegating later when I have to assign some people to clean it up. The townfolk continued emerging from their houses like scared children checking to see if their parents had stopped fighting, and sure enough the storm had come and gone leaving only broken bits of the night before. A few of them started making a half-hearted attempt to clean up the destruction, but after a few short minutes of idle work, the people began staring in Arthur's direction. He continued his slow but steady pace towards the center of the square, picking up each bit of rubble he could with a humble smile upon his face until his arms were filled. He turned around while continuing to walk backwards and looked towards the now gathering crowd, which assembled in the direction he came from, and slyly nodded. A crisp half-frown on his face, as if to say, No need to thank me, I'm only human. Arthur would have continued his self-congratulation had he not noticed that the faces of the townspeople were not depictions of praise or appreciation, but rather grimaces of absolute horror. Arthur stopped walking when he felt a soft poke in his back, and he turned around to see the body of a boy hanging by his feet. The body has been strung up some time in the morning, Henry, the town doctor, said in a gruff voice, and if you look here, he pointed towards a gaping hole in the chest. His ribs were broken with an immense force, just like, just like the others, Arthur said crisply, cutting him off. The townspeople gathered around the twisted tableau in a hushed whisper. Arthur took a deep breath and turned towards the crowd, and an eerie silence fell over them. The women held their children's hands, and the father's with stern faces eyed those watching, as if to spot the perpetrator themselves. Arthur eyed the group, and after a brief moment his eyes met those of Farmer Jacob Blakely, the victim's father. Jacob's eyes began welling up with tears as Arthur gave him a slow, reluctant nod confirming the farmer's suspicions that the naked boy strung behind him was, in fact, his son. The crowd began to stir again, reading the exchange between the two before Arthur spoke to them. Charlie Blakely was murdered this morning. He let the news wash over the crowd. He watched some women gasp as the news trickled through the crowd like melting snow down a frozen waterfall, as if the boy behind him wasn't proof enough. The elderly made up a fair portion of their little hamlet. Some of them were much too old to be of any use. And after the word was carried to those too blind or too deaf to understand, he continued. He stopped for a moment considering what to say next and found himself at a loss for words. So instead he opted for logistics of the hours to follow first and foremost. I need volunteers to help clean up the square and a few people to help Jacob with his son, he said nervously. With the weight of a young boy's death on their minds, a fair number of offers were put out to aid the township and its people. After the duties had been assigned, Arthur swallowed hard and reassured the townspeople with what little comfort he could muster, and after a brief moan of silence for the young boy, the crowd dissipated silently. Over the past two months, they had lost almost a dozen men, women, and children. Arthur was without words to console the families of the departed and instead decided to go about his business. The previous mayor was among the first victims, and Arthur, being a simple woodcutter, was only chosen because he was one of the few in town who could read and write, something his father had insisted upon at an early age. Since his reluctant acceptance of the position, he lost not only many friends in the village, but also a great deal of respect. When he rounded the corner of the square, he stopped and crouched between Edward's barn and Miss Marjorie's house, and wept. The image of the young boy's lifeless eyes darted behind his own, and for a few minutes, he considered just going back home. He knew what the town needed him to be, and he knew that if he was not able to be the strength, then the village would crumble under its own sorrow. He eventually wiped his eyes and turned to see a young boy standing at the far side of the simple wood-covered alley. He let out a weak smile towards the boy, who smiled back. Arthur waved the boy over, and he nervously approached. "'Why are you crying?' the young boy asked Arthur. Arthur was taken aback by the boy's sincerity, which humbled him earnestly, so much so that he had to take a deep breath to keep himself from tearing up again. "'You're a perceptive boy, yes?' Arthur managed to say with a smile, a short step back from the emotional thoughts that swam around his mind. The young boy just nodded, a large smile on his filth-covered face. Well, I'm crying because I'm... Because I don't know what to do, Arthur said honestly. I want so much to make sure everyone's safe in our little town. But no matter what I do, some people still get hurt. Arthur felt a great sense of relief confiding his true feelings to the young boy, and then felt immediately guilty for burdening a small child with such honest emotion. But the boy remained smiling. After a long pause, Arthur looked at the boy's face again, this time studying it, the details of which felt oddly familiar. Then his heart sank. Tears began to well in Arthur's eyes again as he continued. And because I couldn't save you, Charlie. The pale white figure standing before him dissipated into the air as Arthur stood up, wiping the tears from his eyes. He stood in the dark alley for a few minutes thinking about the events that had transpired. Months of this and not a single indication of it stopping. Arthur turned back towards the empty alley and spoke to the vacant space where the boy once stood. It will not happen again, Arthur said as if the matter were settled. He brushed the mud off his hands and headed straight towards the doctor's house with purpose. What's on your mind, Arthur? Henry said without turning his attention away from the book open on the table before him. Why the hell are you even still a doctor? Do we even need a doctor anymore? Arthur shot at him. He was pacing back and forth in the front room of Henry's house, his footsteps making hollow knocks on the wooden floor below his boots. Henry calmly closed the book and turned around in his chair to see Arthur's face, wet with tears and filled with anger. After a short beat, Henry spoke to Arthur as if a father would to a child having a tantrum. Don't pretend you're mad at me, Henry said and then slowly stood up walking towards the dining table. He very carefully picked up a small handkerchief so as not to spill its contents and walked over to Arthur, whose face was now painted with regret after being scolded by Henry. After looking at Charlie, I noticed something different about his wound. Arthur's eyes dashed towards the handkerchief nervously as Henry continued. There were long pieces of wood within his wound, Arthur, as if he were impaled by a tree. Henry said, revealing the small blood-stained pieces of wood that lined the handkerchief's creases. Arthur examined them with a perplexed look on his face and, after a moment, carefully took the handkerchief from Henry's hand. He peered at him more closely and, after a second, picked up the small pieces between his thumb and forefinger, holding it a few inches from his face. I know this wood, he said, almost dismissively. It's birchwood, and and there's birch trees a half-hour walk from here. It's something, said Henry quietly. It's something, Arthur said agreeably. He stood there with the wood in his fingertips, rolling the thin splinters between his thumb and forefinger while he thought. He thought about the horror they'd been privy to over the past few months. The death, the fear... The overwhelming sadness that had plagued their small town. And with a confident nod, he said, I'll be back later. Henry saw the pain in Arthur's eyes and the drive hidden behind them and simply spoke to him. You won't have much time, Henry said nervously. After a beat, he turned around and grabbed something off the desk behind him. Here, just in case. Henry handed him a small, crude blade, which Arthur took. "'I'll be fine,' Arthur said as he flew out the house and began running into the woods. The woods were pitch black, but years of navigating in the dark had all but rendered the darkness inconsequential to Arthur's eyes. As he dashed between the trees towards the birch woods, he thought of his time growing up in the village and how often he played in these woods. They'd play hide-and-seek, follow the leader, or hide the rope for hours— even after the woods were said to be haunted. Growing up in the village, there were often tales of a revenant that lived in the caves below the village and the forests surrounding them. The revenant was said to be a merciless, evil spirit that killed without remorse, devoured the flesh and the meat of animals, and was covered head to toe in thick, impenetrable hide. Its scales were as large as your hand, and when it moved it scraped along the ground as if it were not meant to move. As a child, the stories terrified Arthur, and only now, running through the dark woods searching for a murderer, did the thought of the revenant creep back into his mind. He had just passed the sheer wood when he stopped dead in his tracks. A cold creeped up his back, and there, standing before him, was Charlie, the same as he had seen him in the alley. Charlie? He asked quietly almost to himself. He nervously took a few steps towards Charlie, but the ghostly figure only turned and began walking to the right of Arthur's intended direction. Initially, Arthur stumbled forward as if continuing on his way, but he stopped after a few steps and looked towards the direction where Charlie walked. The woods were thicker and darker in that direction, but it wasn't that which enticed Arthur into the direction Charlie walked. There was something else. A scent in the air. Arthur looked towards the birch woods and, against his better judgment, strayed off course in hopes of following Charlie's spirit. After a short sprint, Arthur pushed through the thick brush and came upon a cave entrance. He stood there, suddenly overwhelmingly aware of the world around him. The forest was quiet and wet from last night's storm. The glistening rocks of the cave shimmered in the moonlight. After a deep breath, he entered the cave. The cavern was blacker than night, and the scent of moss and stone overwhelmed his senses. He paused, allowing his eyes to adjust to the darkness, and he quietly crept further into the cave. As he walked, he ran his fingers along the walls and touched the ancient stone as if asking for safe passage through its hallways. After a short venture into the cave, he began to smell it again. A foul stench akin to burning flesh. As he rounded a jutting rock, his eyes began to ache as light seeped into the darkness, blurring his vision. He heard a sound that made him stop in his tracks, a sort of scraping and sharp snapping. Peering over the rocks, he saw what lay before him, an open room as bright as the sun, and in the corner, a creature hunched over, covered in orange fire and stone. Arthur swallowed hard and hid again behind the rock to gather himself. Fear greedily consumed what little courage he had left, and he stared into the dark passage he had come from, telling himself to flee. That was until he saw Charlie again, standing in the darkness from which he'd approached. He closed his eyes and, for a moment, convinced himself to just leave this all behind and head back to the village. But when he opened his eyes, the dark passage before him was blocked, Charlie's body hung by his feet in the tunnel before him, just as he was when Arthur first saw the boy's lifeless body. Arthur knew he could not let the Revenant live, and, with newfound purpose, he peered over the rock again. As the creature moved, the large, fiery scales shifted, changing their color and heat as if being controlled by the creature itself, and as it moved away from the fire, the scales grew darker and more stone-like. Arthur stuck to the shadows and slowly entered the main part of the cave, moving around to the side to avoid the creature's direct line of sight. As he passed behind it, he saw large, runic markings on the largest scales depicting twisted and obtuse images. He closed his eyes for a moment before attacking and slowly unsheathed Henry's blade. In the darkness of his closed eyes, he found solace and an understanding of the universe. He readied himself for death and cleared his mind of all guilt. When he opened his eyes, he attacked. He lunged at the creature with all his might and stabbed it deep within its thick hide. The blade danced between the large scales and pierced the soft underbelly of the creature. It let out a howling scream which reverberated off the walls of the cave. With a sharp scraping, the creature clattered into its back, revealing its hideous face, devoid of all expression, featureless and cold with nothing but slits for eyes. Arthur stood over the creature ready to stab again, but he stopped himself as the creature held out a single five-fingered hand in protest. Arthur paused for a second and looked down at the creature, who, with its free hand, removed a sort of shell from its own head. Underneath was an aged man with a gray beard pleading for his life.
0: Stop.
3: Please. The man sat as he lay on his back, the crackling fire illuminating his aged complexion, showing the lines in his face. Arthur stood there studying the man, then turned his attention to the room itself. There was a bedroll, a large shining scale-like object next to a large version of the blade Arthur now held in his hands, and, on the floor, a large wooden spike stained with dark blood. You are the creature? Arthur asked him in the dark. His head was swimming with questions about the tableau drawn out before him. You are what's been murdering our people and killing our children? Just a man? The man's face grew white as a wave of realization and fear washed over him. Arthur looked at the blade in his hand and took a deep breath, drawing in the fragrant aroma of human blood and then began to lick the blade. You're just a human! Arthur said with surprise to the quivering man on the floor before him. He tossed the blade aside and bent down, biting down on the man's soft flesh and draining the blood from his body as he writhed beneath Arthur's hold. As the man died, Arthur thought of all the terror a simple man had caused their village. After he was dead and completely drained of all blood, Arthur sat back with a sigh of relief. He stayed in the cave until the next night so as not to be caught in the sunlight and travel back to town to share the good news of the town's freedom from the monster in the cave. Although he contemplated the idea, he ultimately decided never to tell the town that it was just a human who had terrorized them all those months. It was more important that his fellow vampires continued to believe that humans... Were harmless.
2: How would you like to look five years younger? In a clinical study, people that had volume added with Juvoderm Voluma XC in the cheeks perceived themselves as looking five years younger at six months after treatment.
1: That was Harlan Guthrie's. The sun hath dried us black, as read by John Grills. John Grills is a writer and podcaster, creator of the small town horror podcast and the new Creepy Pasta anthology. Creepy horror isn't the only thing he thinks about. Sometimes he thinks about pizza too, not scary pizza, usually just pepperoni with a six-pack of haunted beer or Coors Light. Thank you, John. Our second story will be a bit longer and comes to us from Jenny Ashford, a horror and paranormal writer and a graphic designer. Her books include three horror novels, Red Menace, Bellwether, and The Five Poisons, two short story collections, Hopeful Monsters and the Associated Villainies, and a graphic novel, The Tenebrist. She has also written three paranormal non-fiction books, House of Fire and Whispers, Investigating the Seattle Demon House, and The Rochdale Poltergeist, both with parapsychologist Steve Mara, and The Mammoth Mountain Poltergeist, with poltergeist-focus Tom Ross. Her horror blog, Goddess of Hellfire, contains writing news, short stories and articles, and her reviews and opinions on horror films and books. She also co-hosts a podcast with Tom Ross called Thirteen O'Clock on which they discuss various weird topics and unexplained mysteries. Find her online at www.jennyashford.com or at goddessofhellfire.com and listen to 13 O'Clock on the Project Entertainment Network or on YouTube at 13 O'Clock Podcast. Links to a few of those will be in the show notes. Children of the Night, listen with me to Jenny Ashford's Hail Sire.
0: There were two concrete pylons topped with lanterns and wrapped in strings of blue Christmas lights. They flanked the narrow dirt path off to the left of the car, seeming incongruous against the backdrop of close, moss-hung trees whose forms were starting to turn black in the twilight. "'I'm guessing this is probably it,' Evie said, folding up the directions she had printed out as Jonah turned the Honda and steered it between the pylons." After about five hundred yards, the path opened out into a clearing where cars were parked helter-skelter around a cluster of buildings that included a small barn, a glassed-in greenhouse, and an aluminum-sided garage that housed a riding lawnmower. "'It looks like they started without us,' Finn said from the back seat, for the two-story main house was ablaze with light, and even from inside the car the three of them could hear intermittent laughter— and the unmistakable cadence of the Pogue's fairy tale of New York, the only Christmas song Evie had ever been able to stomach. "'You're lucky we came at all,' she said, smiling as she glanced across at her husband in the driver's seat. "'Jonah's been sick as a dog since yesterday.' "'Oh, I'll make it,' Jonah said, though even by the dim glow of the dashboard panel, he looked piqued. "'It's just the virus or something.' He nosed the car onto an empty patch of ground next to a fenced-in garden, then killed the engine. He sat there for a moment, as though collecting his waning strength for some arduous task ahead. Well, he finally announced, happy holidays and so forth. Finn, could you grab that little bag behind Evie's seat? I'm going to get the pie and stuff out of the back. Did you remember that other present, Ev? The baby one? "'Yes, dear,' Evie laughed, getting out of the car and smoothing her plain black dress over her thighs. It's behind the food. I'll get it.' Between the three of them, the various casseroles and desserts and sleekly wrapped gifts were conveyed from the car's hatchback to the front of the house in the woods, where a silhouette was already framed in the doorway, waiting for them. As they approached, the silhouette resolved itself into the figure of Ben Loomis, one of their humble hosts. "'I hope we're not late,' Evie said, for she had taken the lead in their march up the flower-lined drive. Ben waved a hand at her as he relieved her of some of her burden. "'Christ, the others have only been here about fifteen minutes at the most. They've already gone through half the booze, though. So you'd better get in there. "'Hi, Finn. "'Hi, Jonah.' Before another quarter-hour had passed, the three of them were ensconced in the small but cosy house, drinks in hand. Jonah had only requested a half-glass of wine and made a quick circuit of the room, wishing everyone a happy holiday, explaining his illness and his wish to refrain from infecting others. Then he retreated to a chair in the corner of the living-room, casting an apologetic glance at his wife. Evie smiled reassuringly at him. "'her own wine-glass filled to brimming. "'She and Finn stood near the fireplace, "'which was festooned with plastic holly and red candles, "'but contained no roaring Christmas fire. "'The winter had been unseasonably warm, "'even for Florida, "'so Ben, or someone, "'had simply poked the television into the grate "'and queued up a DVD of a burning Yule log, "'flickering on a continuous loop. "'It was only a small party,' "'but a raucous one. "'The Pogues had given way to some punk Christmas compilation, "'and the liquor was still flowing freely. "'Evie glanced at Jonah again. "'He had leaned back in his chair, "'the level of wine in his glass no lower "'than it had been at first pour. "'His eyes were closed, but he was still awake, "'for an amused smile played on his lips, "'and his head bobbed in time with the music. "'Evie felt bad for bringing him to the party. "'It wasn't only because he was sick.' but also because this wasn't even his crowd. They were all old college friends from the theater department at UF, and other than Finn, who had ended up working for the same company as Evie, Jonah barely knew them. "'I can't believe Ben and Mel wanted to live way out here,' said Finn, taking a liberal slug off his drink. Evie grinned. "'Oh, come on, it's not way out here. why?' "'There's a bait shop strip-club not five miles up the track.' "'Yeah, I think I saw Leatherface waving to us from the porch as we passed that,' Finn said, and they both erupted in snickers. "'I think I can guess what you two are laughing at. "'Melanie, Ben's wife of two years, had approached across the living room "'and was looking at them with mock disapproval. "'Her pregnancy, which aside from Christmas, was the main point of the celebration,' "'was far enough advanced that her belly made a hard, shiny sphere "'of the midriff of her red satin dress. "'She leaned forward across her bulk and kissed their cheeks in turn. "'You look phenomenal, Mel,' Evie said. "'Melanie threw back her head and preened. "'Yes, just like a radiant hippopotamus. "'And don't think flattery is going to make me forget "'that you were casting aspersions on our Laura Ingalls experience out here. "'I'm curious, Mel,' Finn said drawing his thick eyebrows close together in faux seriousness. Have you started hearing banjos, perhaps? Melanie laughed in spite of herself. Put a sock in it, Finn, or we're not going to feed you. Come on, it's all on the table. She looked over at Evie's husband. Jonah, are you going to eat with us, or do you fear you might vomit on the honey ham? Jonah's eyes remained closed, but a grin split his pale face. "'I'll be all right. I'm getting up right now.' They all moved toward the table and took their places where their names appeared on glittery red cards. Evie was between Jonah and Finn, Ben sat at the foot of the table, and Melanie at the head. There were also two other couples, Andrew and James, and Gail and Robert. Evie hadn't seen them for almost three years, but they all looked much the same as they had at graduation.' They were still young and vibrant and almost unreal in the candlelight. Ben cleared his throat. then smirked when several others at the table cleared their throats in imitation of him. Okay, okay, you know I'm not a big formal speech guy. But I just want to thank all of you for driving out here to Deliverance Country to celebrate the holiday and the impending continuation of my genetic line. May I be worthy of the beautiful Melanie and whatever creature she may produce. He raised his glass. Salut! Pardon my French. Everyone raised their glasses in turn, their eyes shining with mirth and conviviality. Then they fell to with the comfortable casualness of a group used to breaking bread together. Amid chewing and reaching and statements like, What's under this tinfoil? Does it bite? And I made one with nuts and one without because I remembered Robert's problem. "'Evie helped herself to turkey and potatoes "'with some of the green bean casserole Finn had made. "'She looked at Jonah's plate "'and saw that it contained a single strip of pink ham "'swimming in a bloody pool of cranberry sauce. "'Her gaze flickered up at his face "'and asked the unspoken question. "'Are you sure you're all right?' "'And just as wordlessly he answered, "'Yes, don't worry about me.' "'Evie wasn't worried exactly.' Jonah did look better under the warm glow of the dining-room chandelier, but not a great deal better. Once everyone had eaten their fill and started probing into the desserts, and once Melanie had brought fresh coffee out from the kitchen and poured everyone a big steaming cup, Ben looked around the table, his eyes glittering, his papery palms rubbing against one another in anticipation. "'Do any of you know what this patch of land used to be called?' he asked. "'No one did, but they all knew the tone and magic of the start of one of Ben's stories. "'So they all settled in, turning their bodies almost imperceptibly toward him. "'Back in 1900, or somewhere around there, "'this place was just a farm in the middle of this huge wilderness, "'totally surrounded by a swamp.' "'So just like now, then,' Andrew said. "'You know better than to interrupt me when I'm drunk and pontificating,' Ben said, "'pointing at Andrew with a waggling finger. "'Anyway, just a farm in the middle of nowhere. "'I don't think it had a name at first, "'but after a while people started calling it Birch Fire.' "'Tell them why it was called that, Ben.' Melanie was leaning across the table toward him, at least as close as her belly would allow. I'm going to tell them bun in the oven. Now, Birch was the last name of the farmer who lived here, and his wife's last name too, obviously. The fire part comes from the fact that old Birch built this big old weird-looking incinerator on the property, and he was always burning things in it. Wait a minute. How would anyone know that? I thought you said there was no one else around. Gail held a forkful of pecan pie topped with whipped cream halfway to her mouth. Damn it, whose story is this? Ben said, and the table boiled over into giggles. When the tipsy laughter had subsided, Ben leaned in again, lowering his voice into a scary Vincent Price register. "'People could smell the burning for miles around. "'They all said it smelled like the fires of hell. "'With just a touch of smoldering flesh. "'For a little added spice,' Finn interjected. "'Ben went on, ignoring him. "'The word kind of got around that Birch and his wife "'were maybe up to some foul deeds.' "'murder or some type of witchcraft. "'So a few of the old-timers, "'along the outer edge of the swamp, "'they decided to bring their guns and investigate. "'Night had fallen fully outside, "'a complete country darkness "'with no ambient glow from the streetlights "'or other houses, "'a darkness like a black curtain. "'Evie could see all of them sitting around the table, "'reflected back at her from the black windows.' "'faces smirking, but rapt and almost pagan. "'They crept onto the farm one night "'with their guns and lanterns "'after the birches were asleep, "'and right away they knew that horrible smell "'was coming from that strange incinerator contraption "'out behind the barn. "'So they all went up to it "'and raised their lanterns and had a look inside. "'Everyone at the table was silent now, their half-eaten desserts still on the plates in front of them, their coffee growing cold. The only sound was the occasional susurrus of wind through the thicket of trees outside, the droning whir of crickets. Ben had paused in his story for so long that the silence began to feel as enormously pregnant as Melanie's womb and even then he let it hang over the table a little longer, milking the suspense for all it was worth. It was a talent that had served him well on the stage and was still serving him well, if the reviews in the theatre magazines were to be believed. At last he spoke, his eyes like twin candle flames shining from puddles of black oil. At first, they couldn't tell exactly what it was they were looking at. A lot of it was just ash or twisted black shapes. But then they started poking around in there, and by the light of the lanterns they finally figured out what old farmer Birch had been burning. Tell them what it was, Ben. Melanie's pretty round face was taut with the pleasure of the tale he was telling. In school, Mel had always taken great delight in the morbid, and Evie was strangely comforted that even her impending motherhood had not changed her. Fetuses, Ben said, drawing his head back and raising his eyebrows. But not just regular fetuses. They were almost human, but then again, not quite. James snorted laughter, but abruptly stopped when his boyfriend Andrew poked him in the ribs. When they saw the remains of all those burned... things, then the men knew for sure what they were up against. "'Which was what, exactly?' Finn said, inadvertently whispering to match Ben's tone." "'There's an old Seminole legend,' Melanie said, "'picking up the story as smoothly as if she had rehearsed it, "'about a creature that lives in the woods. "'No one has ever really seen it, "'but sometimes people could hear it in the woods at night, "'something very big moving very slowly and steadily, "'almost dragging itself through the undergrowth. "'Every now and again someone would catch a glimpse of something through the trees,' Something huge and shiny, wet and white, like something that lived underground and never saw the sun. A fat, white, slimy thing, like a larva. Robert curled his lip in disgust. Where do you guys come up with this stuff? Please hold all questions until the end of the story, Melanie said, again as if she had rehearsed. It occurred to Evie that Mel might have been practicing this shtick for weeks, eager to tell them this tale. Indeed, it might have been the whole point of the party, Christmas and baby be damned. They called it Hatquita. It means white father or pale sire, Mel said, a quivering smile teasing the corners of her mouth. It was said to propagate itself by choosing human women to carry its offspring. "'Is there something you're trying to tell us, Mal?' Finn said, glancing at her belly. She flashed him a smirk. "'That was where Birch's wife came in,' she said. "'Anyway, the men knew there was nothing they could do to help the Birches, "'except release them from their horrible suffering.' Ben drained the last of his wine from the glass." "'They put the farm to the torch,' he said, "'with Birch and his wife still inside. "'And then it really was a Birch fire,' Mel said. "'The perfect capper to the performance, "'the cherry on top of the sundae. "'Anyone want more coffee?' "'The tension dissipated from around the table "'like air being released from a balloon, "'and soon the wine and nerves were giving rise "'to laughter and conversation.' "'that seemed a little louder than they needed to be. "'After Mel had retreated into the kitchen, "'Evie turned to Ben. "'What kind of bullshit story was that?' "'She said with a grin. "'He raised his hand. "'Every word of it is true. "'I swear to Wikipedia. "'He offered her the wine bottle, "'and at first she shook her head, "'but then she relented. "'It was a party, after all. "'She was pretty buzzed, "'but it was a pleasant buzz.' The incinerator thing is still there, you know. Ben wasn't looking at her, concentrating on pouring the wine without spilling it. Evie's eyes widened. What? We didn't see anything like that when we drove up. It's behind the barn, like I said in the story. We built our barn where the birch one used to be. Evie cocked an eyebrow. How come the vigilantes didn't burn that, too? Oh, they tried to, Ben said. Flames kept going out. Damnedest thing. He grinned wickedly at her. After Mel opens her presents, maybe we can all go outside and see it. After the food and drink had been cleared away, Evie found herself sitting in a chair by the fireplace, listening to the howls of laughter as Mel opened the wildly inappropriate baby gifts everyone had brought, including a pacifier with vampire fangs and a tiny black T-shirt bearing the slogan, They Shake Me. Evie laughed, too, but she couldn't stop thinking about Ben's crazy story, wondering if that infernal barbecue was really still out there in the inky blackness beyond the windows, standing there as a mute testament to accursed madness. Once Mel had torn through her pile of gifts and more wine had been consumed, Ben suggested the whole party should drive out to town to see some Christmas parade with fireworks. Most everyone agreed immediately and began squabbling about who was still sober enough to pilot Ben's ancient Chevy Suburban. Evie glanced over at Jonah, who still looked like death warmed up, and then over at Finn, who was looking at her with a strange intensity she had been noticing a lot in the past few months. You don't mind if I go ahead and crash early, do you? Jonah was stretched out on the love seat, his shoes abandoned on the rug. "'I'm still not feeling very well.' "'Ben looked down at him, drunkenly stern. "'If you must be a complete and utter killjoy, then by all means. "'We gave you the first bedroom up at the top of the stairs, "'if you want an actual bed to die in.' "'Jonah smiled weakly. "'Thanks. I might take you up on that.' "'I guess I'll stay here with him,' Evie said, "'in case he needs anything.' She knew he probably wouldn't. He would likely just fall asleep until mid-morning. I'll stay too, Finn said, a little too quickly. No offense, but watching the world's most inbred Christmas parade doesn't sound like a way to spend an evening. Oh, I see. Us country folk aren't good enough for you latte-sipping urban types, Ben sniffed. That's fine. Eat my food, drink my booze, ogle my pregnant wife, and mock me. Go ahead. Finn laughed, and Evie took Ben by the arm. "'I want to see that oven thing,' she said, "'quietly enough that Jonah wouldn't hear. "'Have you got a flashlight?' "'Ben looked at her for a second "'as if he had no idea what she was talking about. "'Oh, oh, yeah, I forgot about that. "'There's a flashlight in the cabinet over the stove. "'But be careful if you go out there. "'The woods are full of snakes and bears "'and who knows what else.' "'I'll be careful.' She turned and saw Finn watching her, a bright glitter in his eyes. After the inebriated party had left, the roar of the suburban's engine quieting the crickets as it faded into the distance, Evie and Finn, both slightly wobbling on their feet, managed to pack Jonah upstairs and get him settled under the dull red counterpane in the spare bedroom. He smiled vaguely in their direction, then slipped into sleep. "'his partially blocked sinuses turning his breathing into the rooting snuffle of a warthog. "'Evie quietly closed the bedroom door and followed Finn down the stairs. "'You're really going out there to see that thing?' "'Finn was watching her as she stood on her tiptoes and poked through the upper cabinets. "'You're coming too, Hero,' she answered, glancing over her shoulder at him. "'That way, when a bear comes, it can eat you while I run away.' "'Ha, ha!' he crossed his arms and tilted his head to one side. "'Ben's probably full of shit, you know. "'There's nothing out there.' "'Evie found the flashlight and flicked it on and off a few times in Finn's face. "'I guess we'll see about that. "'Don't make me call you a chicken.' "'The night had gone pleasantly cool, "'the air just crisp enough to cause sharp tingles "'in the tips of their noses and fingers.' The ground floor of the main house was still brightly lit, and for a while Finn and Evie were able to remain in the charmed golden glow, even as the woods closed in around them. The barn was a small, neat structure of freshly painted blue wood, really a barn only in name. Behind it lay a cone of shadow that stretched all the way to the tree-line, a dead zone where almost nothing was visible. The crickets had resumed their chirping, and somewhere close by Evie could hear the lap of water against a bank. There were also other forest sounds punctuating the relative stillness. The occasional hoot of an owl, the far-away rustle of underbrush, as some nocturnal animal went about its business. Evie's skin prickled slightly from the chill as well as from anticipation. She turned on the flashlight. In its feeble glow she could pick out the edge of Ben and Mel's vegetable garden, and an off-white cylindrical shape that might have been a water pump. The dark forms of cars were pressed in all around, oppressive as the trees, and Evie was slightly disturbed that it took more than a few minutes before she could identify Jonah's Honda. The night was rendering the familiar ambiguous. She could hear Finn breathing very close beside her, his footfalls as loud as rifle shots. At last, the farthest reach of the flashlight beam splashed across a misshapen pile of blacker shadow, and Evie's heartbeat quickened in time with her pace. Finn fell behind for a moment, and then she heard him trotting to catch up, whispering, Is that it? into her ear and sounding as though he was screaming. "'The incinerator was nothing in particular to look at. "'It was really no more than a hastily assembled pile of flat stones "'a bit taller than a person, "'with a raggedy, almost square opening "'about three-quarters of the way up from the bottom. "'A few of the topmost stones looked broken off or missing, "'and even in the negligible illumination from the flashlight "'Evie could see the harsh blackening along part of the surface.' "'exactly as if the structure had once caught fire. "'It even still had a bare whiff of a burnt smell about it, "'a dusty, black smell, dry and sharp. "'But underneath that, Evie thought she could smell something else, "'something wet and secretive. "'Guess Ben was telling the truth after all,' "'Finn muttered under his breath. And Evie wanted to tell him to be quiet, but she was too distracted by the feel of his body heat, practically pressed up against her left side, and the soft whiff of his breath on her cheek. Leaning forward, she shined the flashlight into the opening and peered inside. It was black as a hell-mouth in there, and the secret wet smell was more pronounced, so much so that her nose wrinkled involuntarily. The hole seemed to go deeper into the structure than it had first appeared, though in the darkness it was impossible to see any remnants of what had once burned there. Ben's story notwithstanding, it had probably been nothing more nefarious than a few pork ribs. But still. Evie straightened up again, noticing as she did that Finn seemed very close now the wine and cologne scent of him nearly drowning out the damp-burned smell from the incinerator. Evie realized she was more than a little drunk, and with this realization came a sudden, crystalline revelation, an understanding of Finn's closeness, his intense stares at the party, the strange way he had been looking at her at work for the past few months. Maybe she'd been too wrapped up in her life with Jonah to see it before— but now she did. Well, Finn said, still keeping his voice low, as if not to disturb the pagan gods of the forest. Was it all you hoped it would be and more? She turned the flashlight beam into his face, and he squinted but didn't look away from her. Finn, she said, and she wasn't sure what words she had planned to say after that, but it didn't matter because at that moment he kissed her. "'Somewhat hesitantly, his soft lips tasting of grapes and icing sugar. "'Then he pulled back, his eyes almost comically wide, "'as if they were shocked at what the lower half of his face had done "'under their lax surveillance. "'They stared at each other for a moment, Finn's features still bathed in the shaky partial glow of the flashlight, "'their breathing gone ragged, as if they'd both been running.' Evie felt something very strange come over her, perhaps only the shock of the situation mixed with the potent effects of the wine, but perhaps something else as well. For some reason, her mind flashed on Jonah and his pitiful sick snores as he lay in the guest-room upstairs, and she suddenly thought of things about him that she'd never consciously thought before, like the way one eye drooped when he looked at her. THE WAY HE HUMMED BETWEEN HIS TEETH WHEN HE WAS NERVOUS, THE WAY HE ALWAYS PULLED STUPID FACES WHEN THEY WERE MAKING LOVE, AS IF HE COULD NEVER QUITE TAKE THE ENDEAVOR SERIOUSLY. SHE FELT DISTANTLY GUILTY FOR THINKING THESE THINGS, BUT THE IMPRESSIONS NEVERTHELESS CAME TO HER IN A HOT WAVE OF EMOTION THAT ALSO CARRIED WITH IT THE SUDDEN APPRECIATION OF THE PALE, SLOPING ANGLES OF FINN'S FACE. The way his dark hair fell and just so wisps across his forehead, the way his silver-green eyes considered her with open longing, the sweet animal smell of him overpowering her better judgment, short-circuiting her rational brain and plugging straight into the reptilian. With no further consideration she touched the side of his face with her free hand and leaned in, pressing her lips against his hard, She could feel their heartbeats tripping in crazy jazz improv rhythms as their bodies met. When she backed off, a seeming eternity later, she felt as though she might lose her balance and steadied herself by placing her hand on the lip of the incinerator's opening. The burned stone felt powdery, yet oddly slick beneath her fingers. Finn's gaze dropped. I didn't mean for that to happen. "'he said, his voice almost muffled, "'as if they were facing each other in a fabric bag. "'Evie willed her heart to stop racing, "'breathed slowly through her nose. "'It's all right. "'I think we're both a little drunk. "'That wasn't all it was, of course, "'but normalcy had to be restored, "'the incident closed off from external reality. "'Yeah, I guess we are. "'The green of his eyes seemed to darken, "'the green of the surrounding forest at twilight. "'But then the illusion passed. "'Did you see what you wanted to see?' "'Evie had almost forgotten about the incinerator, "'poised there beside her, supporting her wobbling legs. "'Yeah, I guess I... "'And then there was a strange sound from the wood. "'Not a loud sound, but somehow undergirded, "'more felt than heard. Finn looked at her, His eyes round, and Evie's heart wheezed into maximum capacity again, threatening to burst through her chest. The sound came again, a low, dragging sound, a belly-crawling sound. Evie first thought of a big gator crawling out of the swamp, its scaly hide shimmering black in the moonlight. But what she really thought of, in the part of her mind where her consciousness would not go, was a blind, white, wet thing, pulling itself through the fallen leaves with its pulse-pink appendages, like segmented beetle legs. The air temperature seemed to have plunged fifteen degrees, and she shuddered. Let's get back to the house. Finn was clearly frightened, his pale face gone paler still in the silent movie flicker of the flashlight she still held in her trembling hand. "'Yeah.' Evie loosened her grip on the incinerator opening. But for a moment, it seemed that her hand was reluctant to let go. It felt like there was a twenty-pound dumbbell at the end of her arm. "'I shouldn't drink so much, it's making me stupid,' she thought. Though that was just the innocuous mask over the face of her real thoughts. And she yanked her hand away with such force that she nearly toppled to the ground." Would have, in fact, had Finn not clumsily caught her. Right. Sorry. The darkness around her was spinning a little now, the stars overhead like white streaks spiraling into a drain. She pointed the flashlight in the direction she thought the house lay in, though the barn was evidently blocking her view of it, because she could see nothing but shadows on top of shadows. Come on. "'She whispered, comforted by the warmth of Finn's body beside her. "'He gripped her free hand, "'but then pulled away with a sharp cry of disgust. "'What?' she said, and then she felt it. "'A small damp weight on the back of her hand, "'ticklish and taunting. "'And she brought her hand into the circle of light "'and saw a plump white caterpillar, or maggot, "'crawling around there on her skin "'as if looking for a place to burrow into.' its tiny stub legs moving in a disturbing synchrony. With a screamy exhale she flung her hand backward, back towards the incinerator from where the creature had probably emerged, the incinerator she could no longer see. She felt the weight of the thing separate from her flesh, and even though she could hear the fat plop as it landed in the underbrush behind the barn, the sensation of it crawling on the back of her hand remained, "'seeming to spread up her arms and neck to her face like a fast-acting rash. "'And it was all she could do to keep from dropping the flashlight "'and falling to the ground, howling and scratching at herself "'until her skin was flayed raw. "'Give me the flashlight, Ev.' Finn's unsteady voice came stuttering out of the darkness, "'and after a moment she felt his fingers prying it loose from her death-grip.' "'Then his hand wrapped itself around her uncontaminated one "'and pulled her forward. "'And though the night was sightless, disorienting, "'she let herself be led, "'trailing behind the guttering flashlight beam "'as it shined upon nothing. "'It might have been a minute or an hour "'when they arrived back at the house "'with its obscenely illuminated windows, "'and as they stumbled across the threshold moving from the brisk swirling chill of the outdoors to the gently heated interior. Evie felt a surge of nausea and staggered on her feet, certain she would vomit. She dropped Finn's hand and leaned forward over her knees, but nothing came. Though a slick of cold sweat had broken out all over her skin, she was either very drunk or had caught whatever Jonah had. Finn was standing over her, "'the lit flashlight forgotten in his hand. "'And he was asking her if she was all right, "'but she could only register his voice at a distance, "'a crackling radio signal from a faraway satellite. "'At last she straightened, "'still feeling sick but beginning to get on top of it. "'The hand the caterpillar had touched "'still felt diseased, leprous, "'and almost without realizing it "'she let it hang motionless by her side, "'a useless appendage, With her other hand she signaled to Finn, telling him she was okay, telling him to back off a little. He did, but only a step or two. Without taking his eyes off her, he flipped the switch on the flashlight and set it down on the kitchen counter. She opened her mouth experimentally, feeling the nausea return for a moment and then pass before she ventured to speak. "'What the fuck just happened?' "'Finn combed his fingers through his hair. "'I'm getting another drink. You want one?' "'He turned toward the refrigerator. "'Christ, no!' "'She watched him as he poked among the bottles "'and then poured himself a generous slug of whiskey, "'his hand shaking slightly. "'He looked different somehow, his profile sharper, "'his pale skin fragile like a ceramic figurine.' He had a strange, electric aura about him that had not been there before. As she stood there and watched him drink, she wanted to ask again what had happened out there, and the question had travelled most of the way up her larynx when suddenly Jonah snored upstairs. An impossibly loud, strangled intake of breath, and Evie nearly screamed. Finn was staring at her now. "'Ringed, green eyes watery with alcohol. "'I'm sorry,' he said huskily. "'There was something out there. "'She hadn't known she was going to say it, "'but once she had she knew it was the truth. "'She cast an apprehensive glance toward the windows, "'through which she could see nothing at all. "'It was nothing. "'An alligator. We're drunk. "'The air around him seemed to be buzzing.' and Evie could feel the creeping spread of the worm sickness pulsing in time with the signal. Shouldn't the others be back by now? It seemed very late to her, closer to dawn than twilight, though she couldn't see the clock from where she stood. We weren't out there that long, Finn said, but he looked uncertain, and seemed reluctant to look at his watch as though confirming the time might Make concrete the whole experience. Fix it in the continuum of actual events. I should check on Jonah, she said. She didn't really want to, didn't want his sleeping, oblivious form to silently judge her for her transgressions. But she felt it was her duty. Ev. Finn stepped forward and put his hand on her arm, the one so far unaffected. "'and still the contact made the nausea rise again, "'made her taste something sharp like ozone in the back of her throat. "'She swallowed hard and met his gaze, and he said, "'Stay with me tonight.' "'For a long moment she didn't register what he had said. "'The nerves where the larva's feet had touched "'had spread and branched and touched other nerves, "'and now she felt herself filling with intercrossing wet strings.' "'that tied themselves in slimy knots around her organs, "'slipping into crevices and roosting there, "'nestling, bursting, growing. "'Under this onslaught, Finn's request seemed trivial, idiotic, "'and yet... "'At last, understanding filtered through "'and allowed her to formulate a response. "'I can't. They'll all be coming back. "'Everyone will know.' Even as she said it, she wondered if Ben and beautiful pregnant Mel and the others would ever be coming back, or if they had just driven off into the woods as though leaving a stage set, as if they had never existed at all. Perhaps they had heard a sly dragging whisper through the underbrush, caught a glimpse of sickening sunless white in the rear-view mirror, huge and deliberate and gaining, right before... "'It touched me,' she said." and then she looked at Finn, startled, as though the voice had come from someone else. It felt as though it had, like some other thing had lodged in her gullet and was controlling her body like a ventriloquist-controlled dummy. Finn stared hard at her, his brows furrowing with worry. What? It was just a caterpillar or something, Ev. Jesus, you're drunk. You should get some sleep. Forget what I just said. Come on, let's go check on Jonah. She looked at him again, feeling time stretched thin as spider silk, but then she went, forcing her alien body to move her reeling mind forward. Finn was right behind her, his hand hovering just inches from her elbow, quivering to touch her, but refraining. The upstairs hallway was dark save for the soft yellow glow of a single wall sconce that pushed shifting shadows into the corners. The door to the room Jonah slept in was slightly ajar, as they had left it earlier, and Evie pushed it in with her hand, glimpsing the silhouette of her husband's sleeping form, outlined in the moonlight from the window. She couldn't hear him breathing now, and she wondered if he might be dead, or worse, might be lying there, watching her, keeping very still so that he could pounce on her when she approached. It was a bizarre notion, and she shook her head as if to dislodge it. "'Are you going to be all right?' Finn was still not touching her, but he leaned very close to her as he spoke. "'Yes.' Even to her own ears her voice sounded distant, disembodied. "'I'm going to bed. I'll be just across the hall if you need me.' His eyes were hooded in the dimness, "'appearing as two holes with bright yellow sparks within. "'She nodded, then pushed the room door wider "'and stepped over the threshold. Finn hesitated. "'She could feel his gaze boring into her, "'exciting the larval molecules "'that were now infesting her entire body, "'appropriating it for their own purpose. "'Then Finn said, "'Good night,' awkwardly and turned away from her, disappearing into the cavern of his own room, though he left the door half open. Evie closed her own door, cutting off the world outside, containing what was inside the room, inside of her. The moonlight was sufficient for her to make her way across the room without stumbling, though she gave the bed supporting Jonah's sleeping body a wide berth, still partially convinced that he was staring at her, "'was able to detect the scent of betrayal "'and contamination upon her. "'Instead, she curled up in the overstuffed chair "'near the window, drawing her knees up to her chest. "'Jonah remained still, "'but now she thought she could discern "'a very faint whispering sound "'that might have been his breathing. "'And she fancied she could see two white pinpricks "'in the darkness where his eyes would have been. "'Regarding her from the shadows,' "'as Finn's had. "'Evie placed her fingers across her stomach "'and pushed inward, ever so slightly. "'Yes, she thought she could feel it there, "'a shifting something that was not of her body, "'the seed of the interloper. "'She closed her eyes, "'and for a moment she was outside "'in the crisp, pine-scented air again, "'her hand clutching the concrete lip "'of the strange furnace.' Finn's green eyes enormous in her vision, his lips pressed into hers. That was how it had fooled her, she realized, that white-fleshed dweller in the woods. It had used the form of her dearest friend to impart its hellish progeny, to make her its vessel. It had chosen her, seduced her. She felt a fluttering beneath her fingers, deep inside her belly. "'and then she was sure that the flesh there began to swell. "'She almost called out for Finn, "'but how could she trust him after what he had done, "'after what he had conveyed to her? "'What if he appeared at the door "'and she could see it behind his eyes, "'the white fleshy form of the thing, "'watching her, mocking her? "'And of course Jonah would be no help either. "'Jonah, ostensibly ill, ostensibly sleeping.' but really lying there a few feet from her, watching her, too, through the sharp twinkles that had once been his eyes. He knew what she had done, knew, and judged. Her belly stretched larger, enough that her interlocked fingers began to pull apart, and she shuddered at the feel of the parasitic weight and the squirming movements of the creature. "'drawing her knees even closer to her torso "'in the hope that she could crush it in its stolen incubator. "'But it seemed that this only made the creature "'push back harder against her, "'and she cried out in pain, "'though she at least had enough presence of mind "'to jam her fist into her mouth to suppress the sound, "'to keep Finn from coming, "'to keep Jonah from feeling the satisfaction.' Suddenly, the room was awash with light from the window, and outside a great rumbling sound arose like the combined roar of all the hybrid demon-children emerging from the ground, bent on revenge. They were coming for her, she knew that, all of those twisted, burned bodies squirming and mewling through the undergrowth, followed by their sire, larval father, conqueror, worm, she couldn't let herself be tricked again breached again she couldn't end up like mrs birch not if she could do something to prevent it the bright light from the window was extinguished but evie barely noticed as she bolted from her chair the creature growing huge inside her and threatening to burst from her belly distantly she heard a crack of bedsprings and her husband's sleep-thickened voice saying her name but she was already at the bedroom door and out in the hallway and then finn's startled face appeared in her peripheral vision as he poked his head out from his own room intoning evie wait but she was past him and down the stairs she heard him following panicked footfalls not far behind but she ran on regardless fire would cleanse she thought The same fire that had destroyed the beast's former children would also destroy the one she carried, and destroy her with it, shatter the vessel. As she ran through the kitchen her gaze fell on the red lighter that had been used to light the candles at dinner, an eternity ago, and she snatched it up in a fluid motion, trying to ignore the crawling and gnawing of the furious spawn inside her body. Finn shouted her name again, somewhere. "'but it had nothing to do with her now. "'Cool air slapped her in the face "'as she tore open the back door "'and streaked out into the night. "'Other voices reached her ears then, "'calling to her, crying out in alarm. "'It occurred to her that the voices were familiar somehow, "'but they belonged to a life she no longer knew. "'They called for a person that was no longer her, "'but simply the shell and puppet "'of a controlling monstrosity.' It was dark as she ran for the barn and what lay beyond it, but she was sure-footed and did not stumble. Perhaps the touch of the creature had given her something of its night-born essence. The furnace loomed ahead, seeming to glow with all the cleansing blazes of the past, and Evie almost thought she could see the hideous offspring there, hundreds strong, writhing and shrieking in the flames. The vision nearly made her stop and turn back, but she knew she had to do this. She could not allow it to get started again. She heard rustling in the leaves and fallen pine needles, a thousand insect legs, and she knew the thing was bearing down on her. It would have to be done quickly. She reached the furnace and placed her hand, the one that had first been contaminated by the evil, on the lip of the opening. When she flicked the candle lighter to life, the tiny orange light seemed to illuminate the world, and out of the corner of her eye she thought she saw something massive, tall as the treetops, white and glistening, wet in the glow. Its shadow fell across her. She pressed the flame to her flesh and waited for it to purify her.
1: That was Jenny Ashford's Pale Sire, as read by Josie babbin Josie has a deep love for all things terror. That is why she chose an abandoned foreclosure as her first home purchase. When not hanging drywall or convincing herself that the noise she heard was just a house settling, she can be found in a lab convincing stem cells to cure diseases. In between times, are filled with playing outside in the San Diego sun, imposing snuggles on her two cats, and sometimes even her human companion. Narrating stories is a special treat that she enjoys immensely, and she hopes you enjoy listening to them. As always, Josie, thank you. That will be our show for the evening, children of the night. Visit our Patreon page in the links below, and don't forget to like us on iTunes or Acast or wherever you found your podcasts. Our show was produced by our editor, Scott Silk, and theme music by Diane Severson. Join us again next week for another episode of Tales to Terrify.
3: This presentation has been brought to you by the District of Wonders Network, dedicated to podcasting the finest genre fiction. You can learn more about the District of Wonders and their many literary productions at their website, www.districtofwonders.com. Thank you for listening.